Good to have you guys here. Turn your Bibles to the book of Job, the last chapter in the book of Job. The last chapter, the next to the last message, assuming we make it through today. Uh, glad to have you guys here and glad to talk about friendships. Uh, we're looking at Job chapter 42, verses 7 through 9. Job chapter 42, verses 7 through 9. For those of you that are new, don't freak out. We're at the end of a series, so if you feel a little lost, that's understandable. We're going to start a new series here in the next couple of weeks, and uh, we'll go to something that uh, is, uh, I think you'll find very, uh, very practical and helpful, and hopefully this was practical as well. But a couple lessons. Let me start off. Lessons learned about from Job about suffering and relationships. couple lessons. Number one, suffering in general causes friction in relationships. True or false? Suffering in general causes friction in relationships. We know that and the devil knows that. At the very beginning of the book of Job, the goal of the devil in making accusations against Job was to cause this kind of friction. His original accusation was that Job's suffering would cause enough friction and enough tension between Job and God that Job would actually curse him to his face. Well, as you know, the accuser was wrong about Job, but his schemes was were successful in causing friction in other relationships. For instance, between Job and his wife. He lost the support of his wife due to the suffering. He lost the sympathy of three of his close friends due to the suffering. So suffering in general causes friction. But, number two, undeserved suffering. Undeserved suffering can fracture even the best of friendships. Undeserved suffering can fracture even the best of relationships. And one reason is because undeserved suffering is so unexpected. Hey, I didn't see this coming because I didn't think I deserved it. And sometimes it comes so hard and so fierce like it did for Job. You're like, this is unfathomable. And, and it throws our relationships into turmoil vertically with God. We start questioning God and horizontally with others, we start blaming, we start questioning, and we become, listen, when we experience undeserved suffering, we've learned this from Job, we begin, begin, begin to get obsessed with asking questions like, why? Why did this happen to me? Why did you let this happen to me? How long is this going to happen to me? And when, God, are you going to come down and change this situation for me? And we begin to get depressed. We've talked about that. We begin to get depressed. We begin to get negative in our talking, in our thinking. And it's not just us who are doing the suffering, but those around us. For instance, Job's wife had these encouraging words. Why don't you just curse God and die? That's friction in a relationship. Another reason why undeserved suffering can cause friction among the best of friends is due to wrong theology, like prosperity theology, which says you will always reap what you sow in this life. You will always get what's coming to you in this life. The only problem is that's not true. Some bad people don't get what they deserve, and good people sometimes get what they don't deserve. 
And Job's three friends gave this kind of advice to him. Eliphaz said this, you're a you're slight sin. You have slight sin in your life, so you need to repent, and this will all go away. Bildad was more brutal. You have secret sin in your life. Repent, and this will all go away. And Zophar was zealous about saying, you are one serious sinner. Get right with God, and this will all go away. Well, the reality is this. In our well-meaning efforts, and these guys were well-meaning, and I believe his wife was well-meaning. We try to fix our friends, don't we? We try to solve their problems. We try to explain their suffering. And sometimes we try to defend God's character. And in the, in the meantime, we come up with wrong assumptions. We take the wrong approach and we have the wrong attitude. And what does it do? It fractures our friendships. So what's necessary to fix a fractured friendship? That's what we want to look at today. And verses 7 through 9 will help us answer that. Uh, Pastor Bruce is going to start a new series upstairs about restoring ruined relationships. But today, we want to look at what Job knows about this. What does he know about fixing fractured friendships? And here's what Job knows. Let me give it in one sentence. It's there in your notes. God's vindication of his suffering servant is the basis of reconciliation with God and others. God's vindication of his suffering servant is the basis of reconciliation with God and others. Now, that's a pretty profound statement, but it's a really practical one, and you may not fully understand it right now, but hopefully at the end of this lesson, you'll say, oh my, that really, really is true. That makes sense. Let's look at Job 42. Let's look at and read verses 7 through 9. It came about... After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, then the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, which is one of his three friends, the leader, notice the Lord speaks to him, and yet he's going to speak in the plural to all three of them. My wrath is kindled against you, plural, and against your two friends, because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now, therefore, take for yourself seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job will pray for you, for I will accept him so that I may not do with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has." So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuite and Zophar the Nathamite went and did as the Lord told them. And the Lord accepted Job. Now there's some wild stuff in here. I've got questions about this. uh, And you compare this to what God had Job do last week. And I've still got questions for which I do not have answers. But what I do understand I want to share with you today. God has graciously graciously given Job what he's longed for all along in this book from the very beginning. He's given Job a visitation from him. We see we saw that in Job 38 through 42. God, Job wanted God to come down and visit and and and, and come to him and and meet with him in his suffering. God's done that. 
But he also wanted a vindication from God. He wanted God to not just visit him, but to vindicate him and say, look, Job is not suffering due to his sin. You three friends are wrong. Job is right. He's in right relationship with me. Well, he's going to get that. That's what this passage is about. God is vindicating Job before his friends. The one thing that Job wanted that he won't get is an explanation. All right? And that's true for us. We want God to explain our suffering, and God won't do that, but he will vindicate you in your suffering if you're, doing, if you're suffering due to your blamelessness. So God's going to teach, in this, these verses, God's teaching Job, who was hurt by his friends, and he's going to teach his friends, who did the hurting, how to reconcile. But it's based on God's vindication of his suffering servant. Or, if you want to make this more simpler, it, this lesson, I, I, I just couldn't help but go back to that great 80s anthem of my favorite uh, Christian artist, Michael W. Smith. Friends are friends forever. You can say it with me. You know it. You're already singing it. Friends are friends forever if the Lord's the Lord of them. Friends will not say never because the welcome never ends. How do you fix fractured friendships? You do it through the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to see. So how do you fix a fractured friendship? We're going to see four requirements. Let's look at them. Requirement number one, reconciliation requires the conviction of a gracious God. It requires the conviction of a gracious God. Look at verse 7 again. This reconciliation takes place because God initiated a convicting of the hearts. Look at verse 7. It came about after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, then the Lord said, then the Lord said, here's the conviction. Here's the initiation of the process. Now, two times in these three verses, two times, God says the three had spoken what was wrong about God, and Job had spoken what was right about God. So, that raises a question. I thought Job was wrong. I thought he just got done rebuking Job. What did Job do wrong? And what did he do right? Well, well, here's what he got right. The context of verse 7 is the debate between the three friends and Job. In that debate, Job was right and the friends were wrong. Now, Job, everything Job said wasn't always right, but he was basically right in his debate with the three friends. So you got to keep it in context. What was Job right about? He was right in saying, I am not suffering due to sin. What were the friends wrong about? You are suffering because of your sin. That's what they got wrong. That's what he got right. And there's more that we can talk about that. What did the three friends say that was wrong about God? They preached a prosperity gospel. They preached a prosperity gospel. They said, the reason you're doing this, reason bad things come to, bad pe uh, come to people is because they're bad. And good things come to good people. If you'll just get right with God, good things will happen to you and bad things will stop happening. That's a bunch of baloney. Job, what did Job say was right about God? He practiced a persevering gospel. A persevering gospel. He said, look, 
I'm right with God, but this is horrible what I'm going through, but I'm going to stick with God, even though life is bad. Here's the bottom line. What Job got right about God was basically what he said at the after uh, said in his first two responses to his adversity. The Lord, blessed be the name of the Lord, he gives, he takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And should we not accept adversity from God just like we ex- ex- accept prosperity? That's right. And he also got right what he said about God's sovereignty at the end of this book. I don't know what I'm talking about, so I should just shut up and trust him. And number two, God, you are so powerful, no one can hinder your purposes. This, these are the things that he got right. So, so what ha- what's going on here? What happened? Well, you got three guys who say, who are wrong, but they think they're right. And you got one guy who's right, but being told that he's wrong. That's going to cause tension in a relationship. So you say, Chris, so what? Okay. What, what does this mean for us? Well, here it is. Look in your notes. So what? One of the hardest things to do is reconcile a relationship where both parties think they are in the right. One of the hardest things to do is to reconcile a relationship where both parties think they are in the right. So I'm not talking about how to reconcile everything. I'm not talking about all sorts of relay. I'm just saying today that in this passage, you've got godly people who were friends who are now having a fractured friendship because both think they're right. Now, we know one is right, and they are right, and we know one thinks they're right and they're wrong, but in the process, they don't know that. They both can think they're right. So, how do we do this? Well, let me give you three things not to do. Wrong ways to try and reconcile when both parties think they're right. Number one, don't go against your conscience. Don't go against your conscience by giving in to false accusations and confessing to sin you have not really committed. See, when both parties think they're right, and someone says, you're wrong, but you know you're right, if you're a peacemaker and certain personalities that value peace over righteousness or a clear conscience will do what in that situation? They'll say, I know I'm right, but just to get over this, just to resolve this, I'll say I'm wrong even though I'm, I'm right. And this is exactly what Satan wanted Job to do in this situation. If Job had said, look, I know I haven't sinned, but for the sake of peace and to get along with my friends, I'm going to say I have sinned, he would have, first of all, had a, had a, a, a lost a clear conscience. Second of all, he would have then sinned because he would have been lying. And third, Satan would have won because Satan would have said, see, he only does what he does so he can have a happy life. Are you with me on this thinking? It, so here's what I came up with. Write this down. It's never right to admit wrong to make peace. It's never right to admit wrong to make peace. Or to admit what is, you know, what is wrong to make peace. Number two, don't go completely silent and never stand up for your integrity. 
Don't go completely silent and never stand up for your integrity. Wrong ways to try to reconcile when both parties think they're right. Job refused to be bullied into admitting he was wrong when he knew he was right about his relationship before the Lord. Basically, this whole 40 chapters that we've gone through are these three guys trying to basically bully, using modern technology, uh, terminology, bully Job into saying that he had sinned when he knew that he hadn't. Job refused to let his friends fill the air with false assumptions, false accusations. He wasn't afraid to look his friends in the eye and say, you're wrong about me. And he wasn't afraid to look at his friends and say, you're not really helping me with this kind of counsel and comfort. You are spending all this time judging me, but it's not going to go well with you when God begins to judge you. He said that in the middle of this argument. He said, it will not go well with you when God judges you. And now we are in Job 42, and it is not going well. My wrath is kindled against you. Listen to me. There's a time and a place for silent suffering. Jesus did it in his trials at the cross. He, he, he was silent. But Jesus wasn't always a silent sufferer. He also modeled for us verbally countering false accusations all throughout his three-year ministry. So there's a time for silent suffering. But there's also a time for saying, look, you're wrong about me. And my integrity, my character, I'm right in what I'm saying. Number three, don't get so consumed with proving you're right and making your case that you lose focus on your relationship with God and others. This is, again, a wrong way to try and reconcile. So you say, look, okay, I'm not going to go against my conscience. I'm not going to be completely silent. So I'm going to give all my time and energy to proving that I'm right. And you lose focus. You lose focus. Don't get so consumed with proving you're right that you lose focus on your relationship with God and others. This is where Job got off track. This is where he got off track. He began to be so obsessed with his rightness that he became wrong. You ever been there? He became so obsessed with his rightness, he became wrong in his attitude and his approach, first of all to God, but also to his three friends. Job was right that sin did not lead to his suffering, but he became wrong when his suffering and the false accusation of his friends led to sin in his attitude towards God. He became obsessed with his rightness to the point of saying God was even wrong in the situation. So, three ways not to do this. So, what should you do when you are in the right, but others think you are in the wrong, especially those close to you, family or friends? Number one. Make sure we are really in the right according to God's standards and not our own. That's the first thing. See, what we know in the book of Job is everything that Job said about him being right is affirmed multiple times by God. So it's not just Job saying, I'm right and God knows it and you ought to know it too. No, he was right because God had told him he was right. Okay? In the beginning of the book of Job, God said three times, this guy's, or three times at the beginning of the book of Job, twice from the Lord, this guy's blameless, this guy fears God, this guy turns from sin. And here, in these three verses, four times God says, my servant. 
And boy, I don't have time to share all this with you, but look up my servant. My servant is people like Abraham, Moses, Jesus, the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah. It's people who know God, who walk with God, who have God's heart, who are not sinless, but they love God and they're blameless in their desire to be like God. Listen. We are in the right when our lives align with what God says, not what, not because we think we're right, okay? So the first step in this process is you've got to make sure that you are in the right because God says so according to His Word, not you according to your opinion, all right? Number one. Number two, maintain a clear conscience by not confessing sin you have not actually committed. Now, I don't have time to give you all these references, but again, I looked at the clear conscience. A great study for you to do is to what is the importance of the clear conscience in a man or woman who loves God? Well, Paul and Peter valued a clear conscience as a number one priority. In other words, they're not going to do anything to violate their conscience, and neither should we. And we should not make peace in our relationships at the price of losing a clear conscience. Make sense? Let me give you a couple. 1 Peter 3.1 And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Listen to 1 Peter 2.19 For this finds favor. God gives grace to people... If, for the sake of conscience towards God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. So maintain a clear conscience by, yes, confessing when you're wrong, but by not confessing if you're not wrong. Number three, be gracious and patient when making your case and correcting others. This is where Job got a little off a little bit. Be gracious and patient. So, Make your case, in a sense, defend your character, but do so patiently and graciously. Listen to, turn your Bible to 2 Timothy 2. Turn your Bible to 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26. 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 26. And the reason I want you to turn here is because in this verse is the heart of this point that I'm trying to make. And it's basically this. Reconciliation requires a work that only God can do. Look at 2 Timothy 2.24. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their sentence. Don't you, senses. Don't you want to sometimes just knock some sense into people? Okay, when they're wrong, and you know they're wrong, but they don't know they're wrong, and you just want to slap them silly. Well, that's God's job, not mine. Notice what it says. Come to their sentence, escape the snare of the devil. Who's, in, who's controlling it? The devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. 
Now, we know in the book of Job, that's exactly what was going on with the three friends, but they didn't know it. They were being used by the devil to accomplish his purposes. Now, so what do you do? Number four, show you trust God by ultimately waiting on him to vindicate your integrity. Show you trust God by ultimately waiting on him. This is what Job did. They kept hammering him. He kept answering them. And then finally, he just directed to God and said, God, you're going to have to come down and take care of this. I'm not talking anymore. I'm just trusting. I'm going to trust you. I still got some questions about you. I'm still not sure you know what you're doing, but I, but I bring my case before you. Again, 1 Peter 4.19, we've quoted this repeatedly in this series. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what's right. In the end, when you reconcile, with, when both parties think they're in the right, ultimately, and you know you're in the right, but they won't, the other party won't admit they're wrong, you've got to entrust yourself to a faithful creator who will work it out. That's what Peter's saying. And that's exactly what God came and said to Job. He said, look, look at my, he, he took him and visited his zoo of animals and said, see how I control this? See how I care for this? I'm the creator of all this, and Job, I'm the creator of you. And by the way, Job, look at Behemoth, look at Leviathan, even the scary monsters in your life, even your worst nightmare, your greatest fear, a fractured friendship that may never be restored, even that I'm in control of. Just entrust yourself to me. And so what does that leave you to do? Number five, wait on God to convict your friends of their sin by refusing to force a confession from them. You've got to wait on God to convict your friends of their sin by refusing to force a confession from them. You see, that's what happened in verse 7. Job has been waiting, and now God has shown up to convict, initiate conviction of those who are actually wrong. And vindication of the one who is right. And that brings us back to 2 Timothy. If perhaps God may grant them repentance. You see, ultimately, the devil is more powerful than us, and God is more powerful than the devil. So us trying to fix this or change people's hearts, we're not players in that process. Okay, We don't have the power to be players in that process. What we do is we trust the one who is over that and who can set people free. Now, let me give you three things underneath that that I didn't jot down. Number one, God's gracious to convict us of our sin. Amen? See, are, are, are you with me? Let, me? let me try that again. God is gracious to convict us of our sin. Amen? See, God did this with Job. He spoke to Job. And in speaking to Job, he convicted him of his sin. And Job said, I retract and I repent. And he was restored to a right relationship. Now here in verse 7, God is speaking to those who are wrong, the three friends, and he's convicting them. That's grace. That is grace. Thank God when you're convicted of your sin. That's grace. You wouldn't be here as believers today 
if you didn't, weren't convicted by God's grace. And maybe you don't know God today because you've been resisting God's conviction. Or maybe you're a believer here today and your relationship's not right with God because you're resisting His grace in convicting you. So God's gracious to convict us of our sins. Secondly, God is gracious to let us experience true guilt. Guilt is good. Look at your neighbor and say, guilt is good. Guilt is good when it comes from God. Now you got to say that. Guilt is good when it comes from God. True guilt is meant to bring us to God to get forgiveness, cleansing, and, and, and relieved of the burden of our guilt. False guilt or bad guilt comes from the devil and it's meant to drive us away from God and hide in our room, hide in our hole and say, I'm unworthy, God doesn't love me, He doesn't want me. Listen, Job experienced good guilt and he made it right with God. The three friends are now experiencing good guilt and they're going to make it right with God. So let me say my third point on this. God is gracious to grant us repentance for the purpose of reconciliation. God is gracious to grant us repentance for the purpose of reconciliation. So here's my bottom line. Reconciliation is a work that God must initiate and accomplish in the hearts of everyone involved when, a re, when, when relationships are ruined or friendships are fractured. You cannot control it or force it to take place. You've got to wait for God to do what only God can do. In the meantime, you say, what do I do? Entrust yourself to your Creator who will do what's right. So here's what you want to remember. Reconciliation requires waiting on God's chosen time to do a work in the heart of everyone involved that only He can do. Make sense? Makes sense. Fight against that, and you're fighting against God. Number two, now how does God do this? How does God forgive people? Does He just sweep sin under the carpet? Does He just ignore it? Does He just overlook it? No. Number two, there is the sacrifice of a sinless substitute. Reconciliation requires the sacrifice of a sinless substitute. Look at verse 8. Now, therefore, take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job. Offer up a burnt offering for yourselves, and my servant Job will pray for you. For I will accept him, so that I may not do to you according to your folly, because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Let me give you five characteristics of the sacrifice God requires. Number one, it's a personal sacrifice. Therefore, take for yourselves. They sinned. They are the ones who need the sacrifice. It's a personal sacrifice. Number two, it's a costly sacrifice. It's a costly one. Seven bulls and seven rams means nothing to you and me, means everything in those days. That was a huge price to pay. Why? Because... Their sin was big, therefore the sacrifice needed to be. The, the sin was big, so the penalty was big, and if there was going to be forgiveness, a sacrifice that was costly had to be offered. Hey, it's no small thing to say the wrong thing about God. And it's no small thing 
to let your wrong thinking about God ruin relationships. It's costly, it's serious, and it requires great payment for our sin. Number three, it's a total sacrifice. It's a total sacrifice. He says, offer up a burnt offering. The burnt offering was the basic sacrifice for sin in those days. And it was totally burnt up. Everything was given to God. Nothing was left over. Why? Because sin penetrates all of our being. Sin, one sin, one sin. How many have committed one sin in their life? And anybody that's not raising their hands, lying. So you, you understand? What you mean? I mean, how many? Have, how many here have sinned? One sin penetrates your whole being and requires your total life to be sacrificed to God. It the penalty is death. For little sin, for big sin, the penalty is the same because it permeates all of us. Number four, it was a substitutionary sacrifice. That's too hard to write. Put substitute. It is a substitutionary sacrifice. He says, offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. Why do you say that? Because they brought these seven uh, rams and these seven, uh, what was it, rams and bulls. They brought them and you would lay your hands on the head of the animal to be killed because you were saying, this is my substitute. You're going to kill this animal because that's what I deserve. I'm identifying this animal is going to die in my place because it's what I deserve. But because it was only an animal, number five, the sacrifice God requires is a human sacrifice. You say, well, why, why are they killing animals if, if, if it needed to be a human sacrifice? Because those animals were a picture of the one to come. And the one to come was Messiah, Jesus Christ who would someday literally be that human sacrifice as fully God, as fully man, to die in our place. And basically these guys are saying, look, I deserve to die for my sin, but I'm identifying with this animal, kill this animal, because I believe that one day there's one coming who will die in my place. Don't know who he is yet. Don't know that it's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of a carpenter. I don't know that, but I know God has promised to do something. And what he has promised is to shed blood in my place. And so for now, I identify with this animal. But I look for a human sacrifice. Now, you say, okay, Chris, bring me back in. Listen, if we're going to fix, listen, if we're going to fix fractured friendships, and if we're going to reconcile ruined relationships, then we're going to have to come to the foot of the cross and make it more about him than us. And you know what's ironic and sad? is that many times God people don't want you to bring Christ into conflict. They don't want to hear about the cross. They don't want to hear about the Christ. Christ. And you know why? Because He cuts through all the crap. Pardon me. But He cuts through it all. And He exposes us for the wrongness that's in us. But He does that for a good reason. To give us His rightness. Amen? Isn't that good? Listen. If you're going to fix fractured friendships and reconcile, then you're going to have to come to the foot of the cross, make it more about the price Jesus paid than about being right. You're going to have to come to the cross and make it more about how much Jesus paid for all our sins rather than making it about others paying for their sin. 
We're going to have to come to the cross and make it more about how much Jesus suffered for our sins rather than making others suffer for their sins. That's how reconciliation happens, by coming to a sinless substitute who is sacrificed for us. Remember, reconciliation requires trusting in God's chosen sacrifice to make payment for our sins and the sins of others. Third, reconciliation requires the intercession of a forgiving mediator. Reconciliation requires the intercession of a forgiving mediator. Look at verses 8 and 9. We've read them. It's, it, 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 it blows my mind, 8 and 9. That almost rhymes. It blows my mind. They have, their, their problem is they, they've sinned against God, ultimately. But to make it right, they've got to go to Job, who's going to pray for them, and then God will accept Job. He doesn't say, I'll accept you guys. No, I accept Job when he prays for you. Just a couple observations. The three friends had to come before Job. Go to my servant Job. Why? You know, this is really cool. What was Job doing at the beginning of the book? Interceding and praying and offering sacrifices for his kids who he was feared had may have sinned. Here he is in on the dust. He's still on the dust heap. Uh, ash heap of despair. He's still got a boil from the top of his head to the crown of his feet. And yet here he is interceding before God and God saying, see, he's not suffering because of sin. He's still my servant. He's still blameless. He's still my, my functioning as my priest. They had to go to his servant. Job had to pray for him. My servant will pray for you. What do you think Job prayed? What do you pray for your fractured friends? What do you pray? Here's what Job prayed. God, he's praying that God would accept his intercession on their behalf. He's saying, God, please accept my prayers. He's praying that God would not punish them as they deserve, but instead accept these seven bulls and these seven rams as a substitute. He's saying, God, forgive their sins and restore their relationship with you and with myself. Otherwise, he wouldn't have prayed. God accepted Job. I will accept him on their behalf. So here's what I want you to get. Reconciliation requires a blameless mediator to come between God and those God is angry with. In this pro- Again, you've got to put yourself in the sandals of these men. For Job, listen, for those three friends, who do they have to go to? Job. What have they been spending months, probably, saying about Job? You're a sinner. You're unrighteous. You're, 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 you're so bad, the darkest pits aren't worthy of you. Job, would you pray to God for us? You see how humbling that is? And then Job. These guys have been beating the verbal tar out of him, lashing him with their tongue, slandering his character, kicking him when he's down and stomping on him. And he's got to say, God, please forgive them. They know not what they do. Humbling on both parts. Why? Because the blameless one is God. And we have to come to Him and His blameless mediator. Here's what you want to remember. Reconciliation requires coming before God's chosen mediator to give and receive forgiveness from Him and from one another. 
from Him and from one another. Number four, reconciliation requires the obedience of a suffering servant. Job had to do what God told him to do or these guys weren't going to be forgiven. Remember, here's the point. Remember, reconciliation requires God's obedient, suffering servant to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. What did Job have to obey and do? He had to approach God on their behalf because they couldn't. He had to ask forgiveness on their behalf because they couldn't. He had to present an acceptable sacrifice on their behalf because they couldn't. He had to be accepted by God on their behalf because they couldn't. And because Job was obedient, these guys were forgiven. Number five, reconciliation requires the repentance of guilty sinners. The repentance of guilty sinners. Look at verse 9. What a beautiful picture of repentance. What a beautiful picture of what's required for reconciliation. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Nathamite went, and here's the repentance, went and did as the Lord told them. And the Lord accepted Job. Repentance that God requires. Let me give you four observations. Number one, repentance is a step of faith in the Lord. The repentance that God requires for reconciliation is a step of faith in the Lord. The, they, he, they did as the Lord told them. The Lord said, look, if you do this, this, and this, this is what's going to happen. They had to trust Him. But what if Job won't do it, Lord? No, trust me. Well, what, what if it doesn't work? Trust me. Repentance is a step of faith. What does God say to do? Then do it. Number two, it's a step of obedience to the Lord. So they went and did. I love those words. You know, the Gospels, you know, walking with God is really simple. He tells you what to do, and you go do it. By faith, and He gives you the power to do it, but you go do it. Obedience. So they went and did. Number four, the repentance that God requires is a step of agreement with the Lord. By doing what the Lord told them to do, they were confessing their sin. You're right. You're right, God. We spoke wrongly about you. You're right, God. We were wrong about Job. Number four, repentance that God requires is a step towards reconciliation from the Lord. It is a step toward reconciliation from the Lord. Boy, this is beautiful, and it's taken us 42 chapters to get to this point. Are you with me? Look at it. Look at verse 9 again, the end of verse 9. They went and did as the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job. And in saying that, He forgave them, and he reconciled them. And then look at verse 10. This will be next week. The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. You see, it wasn't just the three that needed to be reconciled and humbled. It was Job. And it wasn't until Job had a forgiving attitude, 
and did what the Lord told him and forgave his foolish friends, his miserable comforters, his jerks in his life. And when he did that, then the Lord began a gracious restoration. So here's what you need to remember. Reconciliation requires everyone to repent by turning from their own sin. Don't worry about the other guy's sin. I, you know, it amazes me people so enthralled about other people's repentance. When I've got enough sin to repent of and I resist repenting of, that I don't have time to worry about why you're not dealing with yours. I just need to make sure I'm dealing with mine. Amen? Everyone needs to turn from their own sin to trust the Lord, to forgive, reconcile, and restore. Now, here's the bottom line of this lesson. Jesus is better than Job. Jesus is better than Job. You know who this thing's all about? This is the gospel according to Job. There's one coming who is better than me, who will convict the world of sin by becoming a man and suffering in a sinless way, and he is going to be a sinless substitute, not a blame, not just a blameless one, but a sinless substitute. And he is going to obey the Lord, and he is going to be the means of reconciliation. Here's what I want you to see. Jesus is better than Job. God's vindication of his suffering servant, Jesus, is an invitation to reconciliation with God and others. You say, what in the world? Now that God has vindicated Jesus as a sinless suffering servant by his powerful resurrection from the dead, his glorious ascension at the right hand of the Father, now there's an invitation to the world, be reconciled through this mediator. Isn't that beautiful? I don't know, I hope you're excited as I am. That's just an amazing thing. That Job is a type of Christ. That when, see, Jesus lived a sinless life, and what was he accused of being? A sinner. And he paid for his sin, and he suffered on the cross, and everybody said, there, I told you he was a sinner, look how he died. But God said, I'm going to vindicate him, and he rose from the dead, and and he set him at the right hand of the Father, and in his vindication, there is now a proclamation, an invitation, that you can be reconciled with God, but you've got to come to God's mediator. You've got to let Jesus pray for you. You've got to accept Jesus' sacrifice for you. You've got to accept Jesus' obedience in the place of your disobedience. Isn't that beautiful? And what I've given to you in the rest of your notes is a study you can do this week. The book of Hebrews basically says that Jesus did better than Job in all these areas. And now Jesus is the one. He's the suffering servant. And he can forgive your foolishness. And he can forgive your sin. So I end with an invitation. Won't you come to Jesus? Some of you don't know Jesus. You may not know Jesus. You may not know God. You may not have forgiveness. You may have guilt in your life. Jesus will forgive. Most of us here probably know Jesus in that way. But maybe you have fractured friendships. Maybe you have ruined relationships. And what you need to do is not worry about those other people, but come to Jesus for Him to forgive you and humble yourself before Him. And like Job, say, Lord, I think I'm right in this. I could be wrong. Show me where I'm wrong. But I think I'm right in this. 
and I'm just going to wait on you. And in your time, you will vindicate. But your vindication is still an open invitation to make it right. And fractured friendships can be restored and ruined relationships can be restored. Isn't that good? Good. And there's more good to come because next week we're going to see where God starts unleashing His grace and restores Job. Double what he had before. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are better than Job. Jesus is better than Job. And Lord, I pray that we would realize that what we just heard today was the gospel according to Job. It's good news, Lord. It's good news that we can be reconciled with you even if we totally jacked up our lives. We can be forgiven. And not only that, but you can begin to rebuild our relationships. And Lord, if we're in a predicament where nothing seems possible to make things right, we know we can wait on you. And in the end, and it may be in your kingdom that's coming, it will finally be made right. And in the meantime, we can, we can be like Job. We can persevere in trusting you. So I, I pray for some are in hard things right now, marital, family, work. Some I don't know about, some I do know about. But the issue is you know about all of it, and you can help. So I pray that we'll turn to Jesus. Jesus, our mediator. It's in His name we pray. It's in His name that we know we are forgiven. It's in His name that we know that we're right with you. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Be encouraged by that.